0: I believe so. Silly Zsa, Zsa she would know though, wouldn't she? Nine times, I think. Uh, I quickly Googled it, and it said the Google machine said that Zsa, Zsa Gabor has been married nine times. So she's got experience. Anyway, uh, good morning, all. Uh, my name is Chris, one of the leaders here. Uh, it is great to have you. Happy 2023, as has already been said. You are the lamest bunch of lamos I have ever met, except for Joanne, except for Joanne. Um, We are going to jump into this topic in just a second, but real quick, uh, just one housekeeping issue or more of an update announcement thing. I just want to celebrate something that God is doing in our midst um, as it pertains to our finances. If you... Have been around for a while like we've been announcing just financial updates things like that letting people know where, we're, where uh, we have been and on track to head towards and there was a huge upswing in our finances which was great and then uh in the month of december like kind of year end which is usually like a larger month for us we brought in uh just over i think it was around ninety-five thousand dollars for the month of december so uh yeah that's super encouraging you can be it's like are we allowed to clap about that like Are we a prosperity church? We're like, like, yeah, it's all right. It's awesome. God's at work in his people. Uh, They've been responding as the Holy Spirit's been moving. So that's super encouraging. Finished the year and starting the new year in a crazy uh, place of strength. So, yeah, we're just excited for what God's going to do as we head into this new year. Uh, And believe me, we got plans. Things are going to happen. All right, let's get into this. What are we doing this morning? Uh, We, as a church, have been going through the book of Ephesians for uh, a number of weeks now. Um, We normally go verse by verse through books of the Bible. In the book of Ephesians, we've been calling this series, Jesus' Handbook uh, for the Church. And the big idea is really the Apostle Paul writes this letter to this group of churches in Asia Minor that we call the book of uh, Ephesians. And it's really a letter from Paul, some of his best thinking on what it means to be the church, how the church is called to live out who they are as the people of God amongst uh, a culture that doesn't know, love, and worship Jesus. What does it mean for the people of God to be the people of God in a place that doesn't know who God is? So similar to us, we live in one of the least church cities In North America? How do we live in such a way that would make Jesus known to our city? And as Paul's going through this letter, the first three and a half, four chapters, he's really laying out a lot of theology, a lot of who God is, what he's done, who are we in light of that. But then he hits chapter four and he starts to get really practical. He starts to talk about some really practical issues, issues like how we speak, issues like how we love, how we forgive one another. And then as we head into the second half of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to start to give instruction specifically to households. Like, how are households to order themselves in such a way that would make Jesus look good to those who don't yet know him? How are we to order our homes and our lives in such a way that that would be obvious to the outsider looking in that Jesus is Lord of our lives. And there's a specific passage of scripture in Ephesians 5, and you can turn there in your Bibles if you have them, or you can open up your phones and go there on your Bible app. There's a specific passage, verses 21 to 32, where Paul's going to hit some pretty significant issues. He's going to hit the issue of marriage. And in that, obviously, he's going to hit the issue of Uh, gender and specific gender roles within the marriage relationship, but that spans beyond just the marriage relationship. And he's also going to hit the issue of sex and sexuality. And as we came to this, knowing that this was coming, we felt like this was an important moment for us just to stop and kind of do a double click on these passages uh, so that we could kind of just zoom out and go like, hey, this is a moment for us to have a conversation about some issues that are pretty culturally relevant in this moment. Our world has some ideas around uh, these concepts. And what we want to do is is we want to kind of ask and answer the question, like, what does it mean to to have the mind of Christ as it pertains to these issues, as it pertains to the issue of marriage, gender, and sexuality? How do we think Christianly? How do we have a biblical or a Jesus-centered worldview on these issues? And the reason for that is because, um, like, you, you might not think about this but the the reality is each and every one of us is being discipled all the time whether we know it or not we are constantly being influenced you know dare i say inundated with with preaching like culture is preaching to us all the time telling us what we are supposed to think what we are supposed to believe how we are supposed to view the world and and this issue is no different and and you can actually You can actually just take a snapshot of where we are at today, even inside the church. Forget about culture, but inside the church. Take a snapshot of where we are today and compare it to where we have been. And what you will see is there have been significant theological shifts. It used to be that some of the um, less traditional views on these issues were relegated to sort of mainline uh, liberal or neoliberal denominations. That is no longer the case. This is, and these are issues that are relevant in every single church. Even here in our city, and, and I'm not trying to be super controversial, Like, and, and, and the reason I want you to understand that this just came at a time that it came out as we are going through the book of Ephesians, Like, we're not looking for controversial things to preach about. We came to Ephesians 5, this is in Ephesians 5, so we're talking about it. So I'm not trying to stir up controversy here. But even right now in our city... Um, at PCS, Pacific Christian School, like the largest Christian school in our city, like this is a very, very, very prominent issue that they are wrestling through. Which the fact that they're even wrestling through it gives you a sense or an indication of the lay of the landscape, even within the church. And the reason for that, this is, this is, my, um, this is my contention the reason for that is because we have not been discipled well in these issues. We have been taught how to think by the world, not taught how to think by the Bible. We don't have a biblical worldview. We have a bit of a biblical worldview enmeshed with a cultural worldview, and we bring those things together. There's a um, Christian missionary apologist by the name of Leslie Newbigin, And he says that there's two great errors that Christians or the church can make as it pertains to how we relate to our culture. He says the first error is this it's syncretism. And syncretism is where you just blend into the culture, you become like the people you are immersed in. They start to uh, wear you down, you start to become influenced by them. And over time, what ends up happening is you just look exactly like them. That's the first great error. The second error is sectarianism. That's where you separate, right? Like you go buy a plot of land out in the back 40 somewhere, you disconnect from the internet, you make your own clothes, you churn your own butter, you homeschool your kids. And you just kind of like, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm hitting the eject button. I want to get out. Don't want to be influenced by the world. Also an error. Why is that an error? Because what, what I think we see in the New Testament, what I think we see in the way of Jesus is a third way, a different way. Right? Like Jesus himself leaves heaven, comes to earth. He immerses himself within a culture. But he doesn't become one of them. He, he doesn't become like the culture. He becomes a human, for sure. He, He interacts with the culture, but he is not shaped by the culture, but rather he brings the good news into the culture. And not only that, if you go to John chapter 17, where Jesus prays his high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross, the very specific prayer he prays for the church is that they would be in the world but not of the world. He literally prays, Father, do not take them out of the world, but keep them in the world and protect them from the evil one. And so our calling as the people of God is to learn how to think, how to live, how to act as if Jesus Christ is our Lord in such a way that those who look in from the outside would get a glimpse of what Jesus is all about. And so that's our heart behind just this like little mini series within the larger series. Now, got to be super clear, we're going to like scratch the surface on so many issues and i'm gonna do my best i'll I'll teach all four of these weeks i'm gonna do my best to like not uh, unnecessarily um, offend or uh, again cause controversy or stir up something that i'm not intending to stir up i promise you i will fail promise you i'll fail at that Uh, So I'm asking you to be gracious with me as we walk through this. But we also want to just create space for interaction. So first of all, let me just say this. If I say something you don't like or I say something you want to ask further questions, on, like, come and talk to me. Like, I am an open book. I am, like, I love talking about stuff and super approachable. Would gladly take you out for coffee or chat you up in the lobby. But we also just want to create space for you to text in any questions if you didn't feel, because some people just don't feel comfortable asking that. So there's an anonymous way for you just to ask questions. You can text that number that's up on the screen. And at the end of this, like we're not going to do it probably from the stage. It'll probably be via podcast or something like that. We'll, we'll take those questions if we get some, and we will, uh, we will answer them. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right, here we go. Let's get to work. I'm going to start us off with a quote. This is a, a quote by C.S. Lewis, a Christian author, thinker, writer. Um, and he says this in Mere Christianity. He says, there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. The schoolboy replied that, as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who is always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it and I'm afraid that is the sort of idea that the world uh, that the word morality raises in a good many people's minds something that interferes, something that stops you from having a hard time. Good time thank you in reality, moral rules are directions for. Running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown, a strain, or a friction in the running of the, uh, the, the in the running of that machine. That is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you are being taught uh, how to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, "No, don't do it like that," because of course there are all sorts of things that look all right and seem to be the natural way of treating the machine, but they do not really work. So what C.S. Lewis applies to the issue of morality, I want to apply to the issue of sexuality, gender, and marriage. There's a way that these things are intended to work, and then there's a way that they don't work. Uh, The Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 14, verse 12 says this, there's a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. In other words, there's a way that like, feels good. It, you know, it makes my heart sing. Um, it, it, it makes me want to go in this direction because it just feels good. It appears right on the surface. It's like, why can't we all just get along? Let's just go in this direction. But the reality is just because something appears to be good doesn't mean it's good. And in fact, sometimes things that appear to be good actually can lead us to death. But in Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In other words, God has a way in which He's ordered the world, God has a way in which He intends the world to work. And He is not holding out on us. His desire is not to take pleasure from you. His desire is not to take things away from you that would actually bring you life. He has in his right hand pleasures forevermore. But the question we have to ask is, who are we going to believe who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust that in God's right hand, there are pleasures more. And if we come to him and we humble ourselves before him, we submit ourselves to him, that we we will actually experience those pleasures. Or do we think if we follow our ways, our rules, our feelings, our thoughts, our patterns, that's where true joy comes from. That's really the question. And so as we get into Ephesians 5, I want you just to have that as the background, that that God, his desire is not to take joy from us, but rather to give it to us. And we have to ask the question, do we actually trust that God's ways are the best ways? So Ephesians 5, let me read all these verses today. We're just going to look at a few of them. We're not going to hit everything every week. It's just the way it's going to work. But I'll read all of these verses, and then we'll we'll come back and talk about what we're going to talk about this morning. So Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's everyone's favorite verse. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. And all the ladies said amen, right? Right. Verse 23 for the husband is the head of the wife there that that preaches super well these days for the husband is the head of the wife as christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing uh the washing with water through the word And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at two very specific verses, verses 31 and 32, and we're going to ask one very specific question, of which I will give two, but really it's going to be like two with a whole bunch of sub, you know, numbers. Uh, The question is, what is Jesus's vision for uh, marriage? And then I'm going to give us two, but it'll be a lot more than two answers. So let's look at verses 31 and 32 very closely. I'll reread them just so we have them at the front of our mind. Here's what Paul writes. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So let me just make two observations in answering the question, what is Jesus's vision for marriage? Here's the first one. Marriage, and it's simple, but it's profound, is two becoming one. So the Apostle Paul says right here in verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Verse 31 here, the Apostle Paul is quoting out of uh, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. These verses will be on the screen. I will read them. He's quoting directly out of uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, but there's a larger context that helps give fuller meaning to what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So let's read Genesis chapter 2. Here's what it says, starting in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The first thing that I want us to see here in verse 18 of chapter 2 of the book of Genesis is that after God creates Adam, he says it is not good for man to be alone. A couple, couple comments I want to make on this really quickly. I do need to move fast through some of this stuff. The first one is this. Genesis chapter 2, this is the creation account, uh, God crea- uh, the creation narrative, rather, God creating uh, the heavens and the earth. He's creating, you know, all that there is, and everything he creates, he declares it to be good. This is the first time that he declares something to not be good, and it's the aloneness of Adam. Now, again, creation exists to reflect or bear the image and likeness of God. So as God is creating, he's saying it is not good for Adam to be alone. What we have in the very essence of who God is, is God is, he's father, son, and spirit. He's triune. And so Adam on his own is not able to fully reflect in this instance, the essence of who God's image actually is or what God's image actually is. Now, I want to be clear about what I'm not saying. Because this is not, a, this, Genesis chapter 2 is not a passage of scripture that is saying you cannot fully reflect the image and likeness of God apart from being married. That is not taught in the New Testament. Uh, because we know that Jesus was the full manifestation of the glory of God and he was single, right? We have tons and, and several passages of scripture. The apostle Paul even writes that singleness is a blessing and a gift and it's something that God gives to us. But specifically here in Genesis chapter 2, in this specific instance with Adam and Eve, it was necessary for there to be some sort of relationship to fill out the image of God being bore in Adam's life. So that's important because look at what happens next in verse 19. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, whatever, man, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. So, so God is starting to try and help Adam to find a suitable helper. And this is where we get to the substance of what I want to talk about. Here's what it says in verse 21. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So you got this image here. God creates Adam. It's not good for him to be alone. Starts bringing him all these animals, right? Here's an aardvark. Like, no, that's not a suitable helper. Here's what, you know, like, it's just not working out. This isn't quite what we had in mind. So what are we going to do next? Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up its place with flesh Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. This is the verse that Paul quotes in Ephesians 5. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What is marriage? What is Jesus's vision of marriage? It is two becoming one. This is the first wedding, the first marriage that we see. This is the passage of scripture that is quoted by the apostle paul when he talks about marriage in ephesians 5 it's quoted by jesus this is this is where the bible continues to come back to to give us the picture of what the marriage relationship is and i want to hone in on there's lots we could say about this but i want to hone in specifically on verse 24 which is also verse 31 this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh what does that mean Let's zoom in even closer on that phrase, one flesh. What does it mean to become one flesh? Again, this is the image that is used all the time to give us the picture that Jesus has for the marriage relationship. The Hebrew word is the word akkad. It is a near impossible word to adequately translate into English the closest translation we have is what we see here in the Bible, one flesh, but the the filling out of that image would be a complete personal union. But the reality is that phrase doesn't do justice to what is being described here. Because what is being described here in Ephesians 5, Genesis chapter 2, is not really two people coming together, but this is the complete union of two people. We we, we have to wrap our minds around this in order to fully understand what Jesus's vision for marriage is. I mean, this is the crux of the issue. Because what is taking place here in Genesis chapter 2 is something that is so deep and profound. It's not simply a legal contract that is affirmed by the government. It is not simply uh, a piece of paper that is, you know, given out for tax purposes. This is not two people who have decided that they want to spend the rest of their lives together because they really love each other, for now at least. There is something much more profound that is taking place. This is a deeply Spiritual. And when I say spiritual, I'm not talking about esoteric spirituality. I am not talking about, um, you know, some sort of religious ceremony. I am talking about an actual supernatural moment that is taking place. That's what's being described for us. Something new is being created. What was is no more. And something different now exists. If you think about Genesis chapter 2, this passage of scripture we have on the marriage relationship, it is nested, as we've already said, in the creation account. And what we have in the creation account is this narrative whereby God is speaking things into existence. He speaks and existence happens. He speaks and there is light. He speaks and there is water. He speaks and there is land. He speaks. And then there are animals. And, and, and this is this moment where out of nothing, God is creating everything. And so then we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where two become one. And that is nested within that story. And so what we have here, as two are becoming one flesh is something deeply profound, something deeply spiritual, something literally supernatural. Like this is actually a let there be light moment where God is creating a oneness between something that was two. This is fundamental to properly understanding what marriage actually is. This is why, if you go back to Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, husbands loving your wives as though you would love yourself. Loving, you know, your body is her body. His body is is your body. Why? Why why this radical language? Because that's actually what's occurred. There's actually a new thing that has been created, a oneness that has been created by God between these two. They are not two any longer. They are only one. They are one in every single imaginable way. They are one financially. They are one emotionally. They are one spiritually. They are one physically, according to the scriptures. That's why the radical language that is used to describe the nature of this relationship. Uh, I get to do a lot of weddings. I preach this text at every wedding that I'm allowed to preach where I get to decide what I preach. And um, I actually did a wedding on Christmas Eve. Did a wedding on Christmas Eve at Veterans Memorial Park. I preached this text, and I, I do this at just about every wedding. I did it at this wedding. At some point, I'll stop, and I'll say, we're not actually at a wedding today. Everyone's like, what? I thought this was a wedding. She's wearing a dress. What's going on? I said, we're actually at two funerals. And I'll look over to the the groom. I'll say, you are dead. And all the guys are like, he's right. (laughs) He's dead. He's got like, it's over for you, buddy. (laughs) It's not what I'm talking about, though. Then I'll look over at the bride. She's all makeup and dress and hair and everything. And I'm like, you're dead. She's like, who (laughs) picked this guy ruining my day? Two funerals. But out of that, God is going to resurrect something beautiful. Beautiful. And then I always, I got this stupid little thing I do every time. And everyone laughs every time. So let's just pretend the bride is Kelly, and the groom is Chris. I said, there's no more Chris. There's no more Kelly. There's just Crelly. (laughs) Every time. Every time. But that's what's happening. There is no longer two. There is only one. That is foundational to understanding what marriage actually is. It's the very essence, the very bedrock of what it means to be married. There's so much that could be said about the implications of this. I want to make just two comments on this idea of two becoming one. The first one is this. I believe if you take this image of marriage and you hold it up and you say this is what marriage is like you believe it you live it you embrace it to the absolute fullest of your ability and its potential here's what i truly and honestly believe beyond a shadow of a doubt whoever lives as if that was true will experience more joy in their marriage relationship than any other picture, image, or idea of marriage. In other words, what I'm saying is not only do I believe that God's way, Jesus' vision for marriage is true, I actually believe it works. Man in the machine, right? There's a way things actually work that is better for us. God has pleasures in his right hand for us forevermore. And if we would live his way, believe his way, walk in step with his way, we would experience more joy more blessing, more favor, more satisfaction. Just think about the state of the marriage relationship. Just think about your own marriage for a second. Think about if your marriage is anything like my marriage, there's problems, there's fights. Like we had a huge, Kelly and I had a huge fight on Friday. What about? About plunging the kitchen sink, (laughs) right? Like she asked me to plunge the kitchen sink and I was late for a thing, and I was busy, and I didn't want to do it, and I'm like, I I gotta go, and like, I'm not saying my wife doesn't have other things happening, but I knew that once she had dropped kids off at school, like, she had much more space in her day than I did, this was a small job, like, I don't understand, and then she's like, well, the reason it's plugged is because you put the, you put the, the stopper in the wrong way, and that plugged the sink, and I'm like, so wait, what, you're punishing me? So this isn't like, will you help me? This is like, I'm punishing you like you're taking my phone from me you know, like we do with the kids, and so I'm like, fine, I'll plunge your stupid sink then, and I went downstairs, and I plunged it, and I made a big deal about it, and she was making a coffee and me, I'm like, don't make my coffee, I'll make my own coffee, don't touch, I don't want your help, plunge your sink, I go downstairs, I don't put it away, I throw it in the bathtub, so she can hear the plastic bang against the ceramic, so she knows that I'm really mad at her, and I go upstairs, and she's like, I'm like, hey, we're out of underwear, she's like, you want me to guess, no, I just want you to get out of the house, right, and then she. Like, I get it. Like, that's that's life. That's life. That actually happened. True story. She's like probably really mad that I told you all that. But it actually <laughs> occurred. We're good. We figured it out. We're in love. What's my point? We fight about plungers and sinks. We fight about sex. We fight about money. We fight about the kids. We fight about taking out the garbage. We fight about much more serious things than that. We bring all our junk and our baggage into our marriage. It's messy. It's hard. It's ugly. But here is the thing. Brass tax, 99.999999999% of the time. If we would live out this truth, these problems would go away. Because here's what I know about me. Maybe it's true for you. Maybe not. My guess is it probably is. I am very quick to forgive myself. I am very quick to extend grace to myself. I am very quick to justify myself. But I am very slow to do the same to my wife. Why is that? Because in that moment, we are not one, we are two. Or at least that's how I'm living. We are not loving each other as if we are one. We are not treating each other as if we are one. We are not forgiving each other as if we are one. We are not extending grace to each other as if we are one. We are divided. We're divided how different would our marriages be if we believed we were one? There's a lot more I could say about that. I want to make one other comment and I want to kind of address some cultural issues. And again, not enough time to hit as much of this as I would like to hit. Please feel free to ask questions and don't be offended until you've asked them. But there is a significant Impact and reality of this truth on our cultural understanding of what marriage actually is. We live in an epoch of time where marriage has been completely revised and redefined in many ways. There's a whole lot that could be said about the way that our culture has untethered itself from its historic Christian values and roots. And the farther that departure becomes, the more and more incongruent the ways of Jesus become with our culture. But the bottom line is this, Jesus's vision for marriage is is no longer held culturally. And here's my point though, that I really wanna make sure we are clear on. Our culture has redefined marriage to be something other than a unity between a man and a woman. And according to the scriptures, it is impossible for marriage to be anything but that a man and a woman it's impossible i just want to be super clear and i'm not trying to be unloving or hateful i believe that god has right pleasures in his right hand forevermore but a man and a man and a woman and a woman cannot be one flesh they cannot Genesis chapter two, what is described for us is a spiritual reality. It's a new creation reality, but it is also a physical reality. I'm not intending to be graphic or crude in any way, but when a husband and a wife experience sexual intimacy, they are rehearsing a spiritual reality. So when a husband and wife experience physical intimacy, sexual intimacy, they are rehearsing physically what has taken place spiritually. So in other words, there is a biological and physical limitation that exists that flows out of Jesus' intention for the marriage relationship. Even all of that aside, there is an entire biblical argument for why the marriage relationship can only be between a man and a woman, but this alone necessitates that there is no such thing as gay marriage. It cannot exist. It can't. I realize that the government has the ability to offer legal pieces of paper and give certain statuses to all sorts of groups of people, I understand that. They can they can use the word however they want to. But it cannot be anything other than what is described for us here in Genesis chapter 2. Now I want to be clear, I think it's like vital in every way that we're loving and gracious as God's people in how we hold these positions how we hold on to the teachings of Jesus, especially on these issues. But we have to be firm in our convictions. We have to be loving and gracious, but it's not loving and gracious to not tell the truth. But we have to tell the truth in such a way that's loving and gracious. We haven't always done that well. Again, if you have questions, text them in, come and talk to me. I want to make one quick last comment on this issue. And then I got a motor along the issue of divorce. There um, There are biblical reasons for why a divorce can happen. They are pretty narrow. Let me just ask you a question. Would you cut off your arm? I wouldn't. It'd take a lot for me to cut off my arm. See, the reason that the church has historically held that divorce is wrong is not because God is some angry guy up in the sky who wants to rob us of joy and pleasure. It's because of this theological truth. Again, the church has done a really bad job of explaining that. But this is why. Because what we want to promote in our marriage relationship is oneness. So divorce runs counter to the idea of oneness. But yet this is what the marriage relationship is. It to becoming one. Okay, that's the first point. (laughs) The second point, it will be shorter, I promise. Comes out of verse 32. If you have your Bible as Ephesians chapter five, verse 32, this is what Paul writes. Well, I'll read 31 and then I'll read 32 again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery but i'm talking about christ and the church what is the apostle paul saying so he uses this phrase profound mystery this this word mystery is one that paul has used many times through the book of ephesians and and when he uses it what he's always um what he's trying to articulate is the significance of what takes place on the other side of the cross of christ So throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been addressing, and he's done this in a number of different ways, the unity that exists within the people of God. And there's a number of things that he talks about that could potentially divide us, but he continually comes back to this idea that we are one. The church is one. God's people are one. We are, we are united, right? And it's interesting, you know, the way that the scriptures talk about the marriage relationship and the way that the scriptures talk about the church, like it's, I mean, that that should say something to us about how we think about the church, right? But when Paul talks about this idea of a mystery, what he's saying is there is something significant that happens on the other side of the redemptive work of God. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies in our place for our sins. Our old man, the Apostle Paul uses this language in in the, the letter to the Corinthians, our old man is dead, right? It's buried, and we are now something new resurrected same kind of language we get out of genesis chapter 2 we are now filled with the spirit of god and that is the thing that unites us we are one and what the, what the apostle paul is saying is that that is a mystery but there's something else that he's saying here remember he's talking about marriage verse 32 he says this is a profound mystery but i'm talking about christ and the church So there's a oneness that exists between the people of God, there is a oneness that exists between husband and wife, but notice what Paul is saying. There is a oneness that exists between Jesus and his church. Now why is this significant? Well, if my first point was answering what is the marriage relationship? It's two becoming one. This second point is answering the question why. Why is that the way that Jesus chooses to make marriage? He could have made it. Jesus' vision for marriage could be something completely different, but yet this is what it is. Why? He says it in verse thirty-two. Because the oneness that exists between husband and wife is a picture of the oneness. That exists between Jesus and his church. So just follow this. God's good. He loves us. He dies for our sins. He saves us. He makes us new. He makes us one. The church is one. And that is a picture of Jesus' love for the church. He gives us the gift of marriage. He unites husband and wife. He makes them one. What is that? That's a picture of Jesus' love. For his church. What's my point? My point is this the point of your marriage is not you, it's Jesus. It's not your happiness, it's not your contentment, it's not your self fulfillment, it's not your self actualization. It's not all your hopes and dreams uh, being met by, you know, your knight in shining armor. That is not the point of marriage. I know they didn't put that on the brochure. But it's true. The point of marriage is Jesus. The point of marriage is the love that Jesus has for his church why is that significant first of all because it completely flies in the face of the way that our culture understands the marriage relationship right the picture we have of marriage is that I'm going to get into this relationship. It's going to make me happy. It's going to fulfill me. Gonna, this person, this man, this woman, they're going to meet all my needs. I'm going to experience joy. Yeah, there'll be some bumps along the path, but for the most part, it's going to be good. It's going We're going to ride off into the sunset. We're going to hold hands, and it's just going to be beautiful. The only people that think that are people that have never been married. There's a reason that the state of marriage in our culture is in complete disrepair. 50 plus percent of marriages end in divorce. And listen to me, before we go poo-poo on the culture, it's no different in the church. Why? Because we don't believe this. One of the most significant problems as it pertains to marriage today is not marriage, but it's marriagelessness. People are not getting married. Why? Why? Because dudes are looking at what's happening and they're going like, I am not going to contractually, legally bind myself to some woman who may choose to leave me and then take everything from me. Somebody once described divorce to me like this. uh, If a husband gets divorced, it's like taking a piece of paper, ripping it in half, she gets half, you get half. You rip your half again, you give it to her, you get your quarter, you rip it one more time, she gets that, you you get what's left. And dudes are looking at that going like, I don't want to sign up for that. And women are looking at guys in the state of manhood. And they're going like, I am not going to tether myself. And believe me, for a woman to get into a marriage relationship, to bear children, like it is significant. They are giving, there's a lot of trust that they are handing over to another human being. They're going, I'm going to go and get married and have babies, and then this joker's going to run off and leave me holding the bag? I don't think so. I don't think so. What's all that the fruit of? It's the fruit of not properly understanding what we're talking about when we talk about what marriage is. And so Jesus is saying to us, I have pleasures in my right hand forevermore if you would just come to me if you would just give yourself over to me. The beauty of what Jesus is saying here is that we get to enjoy, we get to enjoy the presence of Christ within our marriage when we properly understand what it is and who it's for. When you understand that your marriage is not about you, it seems counterintuitive, but there's something beautiful that happens where you get to experience the grace of God anew and afresh in a way that you've never experienced it before. When you realize that this person that you're married to, they don't exist to serve you, they don't exist to meet all your needs, and only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Only Jesus can fulfill you. Only Jesus can truly satisfy you and make you happy here here's what happens it's beautiful it's beautiful you actually experience the grace and the love of jesus in a way that you've never experienced it before and then the same grace that you need in order to have a functional marriage it's like deposited into your heart and you get to give it out to others. You get to give it out to your spouse. You get to give it out if you have kids to your kids. You get to give it out to your neighbors because you need it. So when we can realize, when we can come to the, the realization that our marriage isn't about us, it's about Jesus. Jesus. Something beautiful happens as the presence of Christ manifests himself among us in a way that we have never experienced it before. And I'll just say this, any other picture of marriage lacks the resources to be able to give you that. I need to close. I'm going to invite Nathan and Karen Ann to come back up. I want to close with just a thought. I want you to imagine with me for a second what would happen if two people came together and the goal of them coming together wasn't themselves. Like I'm married and my goal in being married, it wasn't about me. And Kelly's goal in being married, it wasn't about her. It was first about Jesus and then about the other. I want you to imagine two people coming together and their main desire wasn't what they could get out of the relationship, but rather they would come to this realization of what has been given to them by Jesus and they would take joy and delight in sharing it with their spouse. Like, what would that be like? I want you to imagine with me two people coming together. Their ultimate objective wasn't their own personal fulfillment, but rather they experienced fulfillment from Jesus, and they longed to see their spouse fulfilled in Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Like, man, when you talk about marriage like that, sign me up. Let me ask you another question. Who does that sound like? sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like Jesus? Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. taking on the form of human flesh, becoming a servant, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Didn't ask us to serve him, him, but rather he served us. Let go of everything that he was entitled to and deserved for us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's like a profound mystery, isn't it? And Jesus' vision for marriage is this. It's that husbands and wives in the room, we would actually live that story in our home. We'd live that beautiful Jesus story in our home. And that the marriage relationship, the unique oneness that exists between husband and wife would actually tell the Jesus story to those that don't yet know him. That we would love, we would serve, we would give, we would sacrifice in such a way that when others look in, they would go, oh, this looks, tastes, feels, smells like Jesus. Like Jesus. You wanna pray for us? I'm gonna invite you to stand while we pray. If you just bow your heads with me. Gosh. I, I don't wanna I don't wanna underplay how hard this is. Um <laughs> I've been accused before of making things sound really awesome that that aren't. This is really awesome, but it's really hard. Beauty is, though, that Jesus just keeps giving his grace to us. His, His mercies are new every day for us. And having been doing this for more than a minute, I can only imagine how much mercy is needed in this room right now. But he has it for you if you want to receive it. He has mercy for you, whether you're a husband, wife, whether you're not. probably people in here who are like, man, I screwed this up. He's got mercy for you. There's probably people here that are super hurt and lonely. He's got mercy and grace for you. There's probably people that just long for intimacy. He's got grace for you. He's got intimacy for you. probably people in here that are wondering if they're going to make it. He's got grace for you. He's got pleasures in his right hand that are yours forevermore if you will come to him. So Jesus, I just pray a blessing over my church family. Whatever the need is, you know it. Whatever the longing is, before it has been even brought to mind, you are aware. And you have everything we need. Would we come and receive? Would you give us enough mercy for this moment? And then we're going to need more for the next. Give us more for that as well. Pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen.